don't you all just love those Christmas songs? I mean, we've been practicing all year, but it's nice when we're in the season to sing them, you know. Um, we are continuing our study through the book of John. Um, we're going to be in John 2, uh, verses 12 through 17. If you want to open up your Bibles there, I think it's a good practice that Pastor Gabe started for us to uh, stand up for the reading of the Word of the King. So if you would all stand for... Uh, the reading of God's word. Um, we're going to be reading John 2, 12 through 17. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, after this, he went down to Capernaum and, and his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts, both the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to the ones selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This has been the reading of the king. You may be seated. There is a deep desire in the bones of all true children of God to see God honored properly with reverence and awe. Not in their own lives, but in the lives of all those who call themselves by that name, the children of God. To believe that the worship of God is to be taken lightly and regarded with a casual dismissal of what God has said in his word will certainly and swiftly cause God to send a destroying angel to purge and cleanse. Let, you, let me remind you where we are at in the Gospel of John. We have learned last, uh, the time, last time that I preached of Jesus' lordship over humanity in the wedding of Cana. We see that God loves love. And he loves the unifications of humans in marriage properly between a man and a woman. He has, as a matter of first importance in creating the roles of man and woman in the structure of marriage, shown his divine will for society and for his own people. Jesus Christ is the Lord of marriage and as such consecrated, consecrated it with his first miracle in his public ministry. This is important because there is a structure to John chapter 2. Jesus begins his ministering at a wedding before cleansing the temple. This will be helpful for us to remember as we dig into the text to see why Jesus was so angry at the money changers in the temple. When we read in our text today that his holy temple, the place in the Old Testament where God and man were meant to meet, were money-hungry opportunists, it makes a lot of sense why the Lord Jesus Christ would respond with indignance. If God is pleased with uniting humans in the bond of marriage, why would he not be ruthlessly angry at those who distort that picture in his father's home? His place of forgiveness, mercy, atonement, reconciliation, healing, and the like had been turned into a marketplace for liars, thieves, perjurers, and the like. The place where man was meant to meet God had become a place where man met instead with mammon. And as you all know, man cannot serve both God and mammon. I have three points for us to draw from our text today because I've learned recently that Baptists are supposed to have three points. So 
Um, my first point being proper worship of God begins in the family. Secondly, unsanctioned doctrine defiles the worship of God. And third, be zealous for God is zealous. If you look at verse 12, Jesus isn't just with his disciples. He's with his mother and his brothers. The holidays are times that revolve around our family. We've just had Thanksgiving. And we're on our way to Christmas. And during this time, we are surrounded more by family than any other time of the year. It seems uh, the same was true for the Israelites during Passover. That especially becomes clear when you look where the practice of Passover was a first established by God in Exodus. If you want to open your Bibles to Exodus 12, 1 through 6, um, we're going to read those verses there. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Before there was a temple or a tabernacle, God commanded the Israelites to make sacrifices in their homes, among their families, together. During their time of captivity under the Egyptians, God had decided to use a mediator named Moses to bring curses upon the Egyptians to free the Israelites. One of the curses was a night of darkness where God had told Moses he was going to send a destroying angel to come and snuff out the life of all of the firstborn among the Egyptians, as I'm sure many of you are familiar with. The Israelites were then commanded to slay lambs or goats and paint on the lintels of their doors blood so that the destroying angel might pass over, and they shall not lose their firstborn sons and daughters. Look at how familial the Passover is in its original context. Each household was meant to offer its own lamb or goat from their father's house. As we learned this morning from Pastor Gabe, Christianity is explicitly patriarchal. This was an animal that came from a fatherly provision. Not only that, if a household was too small and was unable to provide its own animal, a neighboring family was meant to help the smaller family. Then these year-old male lambs or goats chosen on the tenth day were set aside for four days before they were sacrificed. Then at the night on the fourteenth day, all the people of Israel were called to sacrifice them together. There's a togetherness about the sacrifice of the lamb during the Passover, very similar to the togetherness that we have when we are eating of the Lord's table. Passover was founded in the first and second greatest commandments, love to God and love to neighbor. It was founded in love to God because there was supposed to be an unblemished sacrifice, a pure and holy lamb or goat sacrificed to God. It was supposed to be something of a high value that was meant to be a real sacrifice among these people. It was not supposed to be done quickly or easily. It was not meant to be purchased from a money changer as an afterthought on your way to the temple. It was something that was meant to be prepared for with real intention. This preparation was meant to be done before the sacrifice. You needed to make sure that your animals were bred and producing. It wasn't just going to happen. You had to be a good husband of your animals. 
You needed to, even before you chose the animal that you were going to be sacrificed, to pray that God would grant you the animal suitable to be sacrificed. And you actually then chose that animal, and all of your people think about what the sacrifice of that animal symbolized in God's rescue of your people from the hands of the Egyptian in the house of bondage. God was very deliberate in this orchestration. It was not haphazard. It was not a mere tradition. It was not something that people decided to do every year because it should not be something that people just decided to do every year because it was tradition. It had a purpose. It was also love to neighbor because there was meant to be provision for, for those who have, from those who have for those who have not. Those who had the lambs were to bring into those who did not have under their care and consideration. All who are in the covenant of God were meant to be looked out for by those whom God had blessed with more physical provision. This was all in service to God, who gave the ordinance as a type of the sacrifice to come that was now here in the very person of Christ who was in front of them, and the Israelites had muddied it all up. They couldn't even recognize that the very person whom the lamb was meant to symbolize was there in the temple with them during Passover. Because these principles had been ignored, uh, men were able to fabricate uh, and contrive the greedy practices we see here in the temple of God. They used the worship of God for their own purposes. They wanted to make a quick buck. Man no longer cared for the intimate sacrifice that the Lord called for, nor the generosity nor the symbol and the meaning. Instead, they had replaced those genuine articles for unfamiliar animals, tepid, lukewarm devotion and ambiguity. Jesus Christ came to make very clear to them the intention of God in Passover. And surely there were sacrifices, others to be made during this time, but sacrifices were meant to come from your own home, from your own stock. They weren't supposed to be something that you purchased as a commodity. They were supposed to come from the heart, and these animal sacrifices were supposed to be a symbol of that. And I want to remind you what the ministry of John the Baptist was. One of his purposes was to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. A small picture of what Christ came to do between God the Father and the children of mankind. In the place where God was meant to meet with man, Jesus sees his father's home turned into a marketplace full of crooks. All of his adornments and vessels taken and turned from what they were meant to represent. A heart of love towards his people and a means of forgiveness, reconciliation, and love into tools for wickedness, selfish ambition, greed, and oppression. It's no wonder that the chief son of God came and whipped these men out. You see, these Jews should have known this. These were things that they were trained up under, under the Torah. They sat under Moses. They should have known the purpose of the sacrifices. They should have a, a real heartfelt faith towards God in recognizing that the reason why sacrifice was difficult was because it was the symbolization of actual heartfelt killing of your own fleshly desires. But instead, they treated it as a burden of the Lord and sought ways to make a loophole around it. And that can happen for us too. We can very easily take loopholes in our homes and in our families and in our churches to replace true and genuine worship with false practices. So since we're talking about true worship begins in the family, parents, um, are your homes places of pure worship for your children? Are you zealous for the pure worship of God in your home? Do you guard that time of family worship? 
Is it something that's important to you? Um, Have you stuck close to the core biblical principles as laid out in the scripture? Or has an abundance of rules taken their place? Husbands, do you consistently and faithfully, zealously wash your wives in the water of the word? Is it an important thing for you? Wives, do you consistently and faithfully submit to your husband's lead and trust him as a God-providential head over you? Fathers, do you raise your children in the admonition of the Lord, not provoking them to wrath? Children, do you honor your parents? You see, you may not see that that's very clearly in this text, but it begins with Jesus in his family on the way to Passover, and Passover is a time of worship that comes from a historical place where God set it up in households among families. If our sincere, unhypocritical worship begins with pure and generous sacrifices, starting intimately and personally in the home, no amount of church you attend will purify your home. In fact, if your homes are disordered, you can guarantee the church you attend will reflect that impurity. You bring your home lives into the church much more than you bring your church into your home lives. That's why Christ began his ministry at a wedding and not the temple, to demonstrate in order of importance what he came to purify. He came to purify our families. He came to purify our marriages. He came to purify our parental relationships. And he came to purify our children's obedience to us. Take all the time you can, you can to get your home to a place of Christ-centeredness, and the worship you find here on the Lord's Day will make much, much more of an impact on you. If, you if, if these Jews genuinely had considered the real principles of the Passover, they would not have allowed these money changers to set themselves up. They would have known that it was far wide outside of God's original intention for the temple and sacrifice and Passover. And and if you in your own homes prepare yourself in your homes, you will have been prepared to receive the implanted word here on Sunday, the Lord's Day, which is able to save your souls. Instead of the pastor having to come in and break up the fallow dry ground that went unwatered all week long, and he then has to pour a bucket on that water and hope something springs up. To our second point, unsanctioned doctrine defiles the worship of God. It's not enough to bring a vague Christianity into your homes. You must meditate on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If you remember our biblical theological interpretation of John's gospel, and by that I don't mean it's just theology from the Bible, I mean the tracking God's work throughout the Bible and seeing what he did in each historical instance, you'll remember the importance of what Jesus is doing here in the narrative. John's baptism of Jesus is intended for us to recognize him as the God who created everything. As Jesus descends into the waters of the world, the Spirit of God hovers hovers over the waters, and the Father speaks over his Son and over his creation. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This mirrors the creation of the world in which God speaks the world into existence, and the Spirit hovers over the face of the deep. And the very words that God speaks are Jesus Christ into the world. He is the Logos. He is the one by whom God created all things and nothing was not made. Um, 
And then we look at his miracle, the wedding of Cana, represents Christ's lordship uh, over mankind. There are six water jars, which if you remember in Revelations 13.8 is the number of man. It's the day upon which man was created. And God created Adam and Eve and unites them in the bond of marriage. God gets to define marriage and he's going through the Genesis narrative. He's going through creation in general, he's going through creation of man in particular. And then what's next in the Genesis narrative? The commissioning of Adam to work and keep the garden and the admixture of Satan's lie to Eve and the fall of mankind. For some reason, both Gabe and I decided to go over the fall of man in Genesis today, but that was just the Lord, I don't know. Um, so <clears throat> Adam was the first priest of mankind. If you look at the Hebrew word God uses in telling Adam to work the garden, it's the same word the Bible uses in telling priests to keep watch over the temple. The word is somra. And just as the priests were called to keep the ordinance of God strictly and purely without defilement, Adam was intended to keep the worship of God pure from the very beginning. But as we learned this morning, he was just looking at the birds, I guess. Um, and we all know he failed in this regard by listening to the word of his wife and eating with her. What was his chief failing? It wasn't in the eating. It was even prior to that failing to kill the snake as soon as it entered in the garden. He should have saw a talking snake and been, that's weird. Animals don't usually talk. Um, he disbelieved God. He disbelieved God. Um, Adam and Eve weren't content with the whole Garden of Eden and being made in the image of God. That wasn't enough. Life wasn't enough. The, the beauty of creation wasn't enough. They wanted more. So they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, seeking more than what God had provided according to the lie of Satan. What was the result? Instead of having more, they received less and contrived a covering for their lack by covering themselves with fig leaves. Isn't that what we see here in the temple as the exact same thing? It's a little bit far removed and more abstracted than that, but it was not enough that God gave specific commands for his people to follow. It was not enough that he gave them doctrine to believe. It's not enough that these commands come out of the marvelous reality of God saving his people from 400 years of hard slavery and genocide. It was not enough to celebrate and adhere closely to God in these beliefs and practices. These men here in this temple needed fig leaves called coins and dollars, and they used all that God had provided in the worship of him to get what they wanted. It's very easy for greedy, selfish men to take churches and use them to line their pockets. There's a channel dedicated to it called TBN. Um, Jesus is our great high priest as the mediator of the new covenant comes in and succeeds where Adam failed. Where Adam was meant to keep the garden from sin and impurity and failed, Jesus comes into a temple filled with sin and greed and cleanses it. He did not let the snake, the moment that he saw it, last. He went in there and smashed him. Gave him a good working over. Um, where Israel was called to keep watch over their worship and practices and uh, not mix in their own greedy traditions, Jesus comes in and whips these men out of the temple. Our Jesus is not a meek and mild 
tepid hippie. He is zealous and jealous, and he is not afraid to hold back when he sees those things that are in his father's home that do not belong there. When you and I utterly fail to keep our bodies, which are now called the temple of the Lord from sin and idolatry, look to this narrative and know if you are truly his, he will never fail in his zeal to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. But you should be afraid. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And you don't want the Lord to put together a cord of whips because he will chastise you. There is only one thing that is necessary to keep your family centered on the right things. And that is genuine, sincere, loving, and heartfelt faith in God and the Son of God. If we peek a few chapters ahead in the Gospel of John, the disciples, curious to know how to be doing the genuine work of God after they saw him cleansing out the temple and see him doing many more things, and they're thinking, well, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like to genuinely be doing the work of God. They ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him in whom he has sent, in John 6, 28 through 29. You believe in him. You trust in him. You receive him as he is. And he takes your stony heart, your rebellious heart, your greedy heart, your selfish heart, your sinful, depraved heart that's hell-bent and wants to go to hell because it hates God. And he takes that, that stony heart and he gives you a heart of flesh that says the commandments of God are not burdensome. We love doing things for God. We hate our sin. We hate our flesh. We want nothing to do with it because we know that the Son of God died to crucify that flesh. And if you sit here today and you think, but I actually like my flesh and I like my sin and I'm okay with it and I don't like what Jesus says about this or that thing, brothers and sisters, you are very well deceived. You are not saved. You are lost. You have to repent and you must come back to the fold. We like to say here at Providence Reformed Baptist Church, major on the majors, minor on the minors. The major central tenet that keeps all of our worship in line is this belief. Trust in Jesus Christ as who he says he is and what he has said he has done. To neither fall short of that creed nor to go beyond it is what keeps our worship zealously in accordance with what pleases God the Father. Now we outline that in our confessions and I would say the 1689 London Baptist Confession is an outworking of that principle as we go to the word of God and whatever it says we believe and whatever it says we do. But that central principle of the gospel, Jesus is who he says he is and he has done what he has said he, done, he has done. Trusting in that keeps us on the main things. If Adam believed in God and his preserving, saving power prior to the fall when that Satan entered the garden, that serpent, there would not be the death and devastation we see today. The moment he stepped out of that faith was the moment he stepped out of Christ and into sin, and so sin entered the world. Adam and Eve could walk around perfectly preserved and undying, not merely because creation was as of yet unaffected by sin and death, but because they were born children of God. They were born naturally into Christ. They were born under God, and God is Christ. They had not yet tasted of that final and preserving word called eternal life that could only come through Christ's propitiatory blood because they were under probation. 
They were seeing if they would obey. They were under a covenant of works, where we are under a covenant of grace. The point being is, it is through faith in God and believing all of what he says in his word that we as Reformed folk call sola scriptura and tota scriptura. We only have the scriptures as our sole rule of faith and life. And all of scripture is that sole rule of faith and life. That that will at last finally save you and Lord willing your family from that final judgment. Because it will be God and God alone who saves you. Not according to works done in righteousness, but according to his great grace and mercy with which he has saved you. They lost that faith, these men in that temple. They again turned to works righteousness to fill their pockets because money and mammon were their God whom they worshipped and they could not peer beyond the veil to know that there was eternity that they needed to worry about. Thomas Brooks says that if we all took at least 10 minutes a day to think about how long eternity is, our lives would be transformed forever. To think upon the vast expanse of the rest of time instead of the worries of today, our lives would not be oriented towards here. It would be oriented towards then. Our God is a jealous and zealous God. Zeal is an eagerness and enthusiasm for something with a connotation of rivalry. Jesus Christ was not content to let a false system of worship replace true worship in his father's home. And he didn't meekly, tepidly say, I, I don't think you guys should be doing that. He came in there with such fierce rage upon his face, you hardly could imagine it. He came in there with such vehemence and violence that these men and oxen and beasts would not stand for a moment they left. And if you are a child of God and there is sin in your life, he will cleanse you with that same power because you are his. And he will not let you succumb to another. It is impossible for him to allow his temple to be filled with impurity. He is your high priest and he purifies you. And if we take our first two points, um, fam true worship begins in the family and core doctrine or bad core doctrine leads to false practice. We follow their logic backwards. We'll see how to identify when people are being hypocrites rather than genuine. These people will come up with all kinds of ways to satisfy themselves and satisfy their consciences and satisfy how they view themselves in the worship of God. They'll come up with all manner of, of false practices and ideas and beliefs to think, I'm good, or I have this excuse, or um, this practice is good enough to atone for my sins, Hail Marys, or, or anything like that. And, you know, in our, in our modern age, uh, if you go on, online, you'll, you'll recognize that um, there's a whole slew of people who replace um, their indiscretions and sins and, and um, bad behavior with um, illnesses and things that are mental and cognitive when, in fact, it's because you don't believe what the Word of God says. You don't say, hey, this behavior isn't excusable because I can put a mental illness on it. You say, this is an inexcusable behavior no matter how hard it is for me to resist because sin is in my nature and God can purify me from it. We all have natures like that. It's our duty to go to God and ask to be cleansed. And he will. He's promised to do so. Um, and their homes will be disordered. Or as the new 
Testament so aptly puts it, you shall know them by their fruits. You'll go to these people's homes and um, you'll recognize that the husband isn't leading, the wife isn't submitting, the children are pinching and biting and teasing one another, and there's no order, there's no structure. And when that isn't in place, you know for certain that that house is not ruled by God. It's ruled by something else. Um, and here's an example for us, for us Reformed folk who love theology so much that um, might be helpful because even us Reformed folk in Reformed churches with confessions that hear the gospel week in and week out can come up with contrivances and false systems of worship to satisfy our conscience. Have you ever met someone who can articulate doctrine and theology perfectly, but the moment they get into a conversation with someone they may disagree with, even on a small matter, they get nasty and condescending, they get mean and rude, um, they can't tolerate someone being outside of their maybe theological milieu there, that person is likely using their intelligence and study as a cover. It, they can be, maybe not all the time, maybe they just struggle with the sin of pride, but they can. We are called to love our neighbors. We are said to be known for our love to one another. We are not meant to quarrel and fight. And yet these men and women will make sure that they always get the last word and they don't care how it affected the person they were speaking to. As long as their logic dominated that other person and they felt like they were in the right. This sort of thing can be indicative of a dead, unbelieving heart among us Reformed folk. I haven't witnessed that in this church, but there are plenty of reform guys I know that just like being right. A fruit of the Spirit is kindness, not logical and rhetorical superiority. That's not to say we shouldn't care about doctrine, and we shouldn't care about making sure we know our doctrine, but we shouldn't argue. We should teach. I had two friends growing up who were staunch confessional five-point Calvinists, brilliant men. Maybe some of the most brilliant men I have known. Um, very promising futures. Yet both of these men were very quarrelsome and contentious. In fact, at one point, one of these men grabbed me by the throat as an example to demonstrate his superiority over my position at the time. Really weird, I remember that. Um, as you can guess, both of these men have apostatized. Not one ounce of their logic their ability to clearly articulate orthodox doctrine or their persuasive rhetoric was able to bring them to the throne of grace. There is no limit to what we humans can take, twist, and pervert to replace faith in God and use it to justify ourselves. You can be zealous for doctrine and fail in your zeal to God. This is a thing we all need to take time to consider and meditate on. To speak on our homes, I think Pastor Gabe's sermon this morning is a wonderful primer for how the homes of Christians ought to be ordered. Men lead in love, women submit with respect, especially in our day and age. It's very typical for, how do you say it, the woman wearing the pants in the family. Um, you, I remember growing up and constantly hearing, oh, she, she wears the pants in the family. And that generally meant that she led um, and that she was the one who was in charge and I remember my cousins, you know, the children would ask the father if they could spend the night or something, and he'd go, ask your mother. It's like, no, Dad, just say yes or no. You're in charge. Um, weak, passive, lazy men are a sure sign that they have not 
brought Christ close to their own hearts, let alone their families. The same as if they are domineering. We are called to kindness, patience, and joy, which are three characteristics not usually associated with male tyranny. Um, And also, if the woman is loud and abrasive, it's likely Christ is not close to her heart. She is succumbing to the curse in Genesis, which says that her desire will be for her husband, which uh, connotes her domination over him. She wants his position. Brothers and sisters, there is much here for us to consider, and I think we've already belabored the point. Christ's adoring homes are lovingly, biblically patriarchal. And examine yourselves, my friends. Is there anything you are doing or believing that is replacing your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Whether that be your work ethic, your reputation, your money, your family, your church, um, your own perspective on yourself, any excuses you may come up with, none of those things can replace Christ's atoning work for you. Is there any way where you are not honoring Christ in your family? Are you fulfilling the God-ordained order of man and woman? If not, remember, sin is deceitful, rooted out. Um, We are in the temple of God here, not because of this building, but because you are the temple of God. And Christ comes to cleanse the temple of God. And he showed us that first the sacrifice of the paschal lamb was in homes. And God wants to be in your homes. And he wants to be in your hearts. And he tells us that he is with us wherever we go. And that means that there is not a place that we can go where we depart from here in which we are not called to obey him. We are called to obey him everywhere. And remember what happened when Europe turned from the core doctrines and let liberalism in their doors. Uh, Rudolf Boltman and Karl Barth, I think it was either Chris or Gabe mentioned them a couple weeks ago, permeated their pulpits, and in less than 100 years, those churches are now grocery stores and taverns. When churches that are called by Christ have false doctrine, they are destroyed pretty quickly. Their lampstand is removed. Uh, To depart from the central principle in formulation and in practice is a death knell to all who have done it. Our three points were proper worship of God begins in the family. Keep Christ close to your home and family. Make sure your offerings are intimate and generous to those around you, following his pattern for a healthy home. Secondly, unsanctioned doctrine defiles the worship of God. Adam was called to believe in Christ and preserve the world from unbelief as a priest. You are a priest. Christ is our great high priest. Preserve your faith in Christ because Christ will cleanse you. Be zealous for God is zealous. Failing to trust in Christ will resort in all sorts of practices to replace true faith. Make sure you are examining your trust. Otherwise, Christ will come with a scourging whip. May we be those people who are true ambassadors of Christ. As Christ had a zeal for God that consumed him and caused him a righteous rage when true worship was replaced with false worship, we too ought to have that same all-consuming zeal. Do not be swayed one iota to the right or to the left on the issue of your trust in God. Insulate that trust. Protect that trust. Fortify that trust. Exercise that trust not only in its proper formulation, but in its zealous activity. May it be said of all of us that the, Lord, the zeal of the Lord has consumed us.
And then my last page just says, amen, let's pray. So <laughs> let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, God, it is so easy for us to become apathetic in this world. It's so easy for us to be broken down, beaten down, distracted, um, turning to the right or to the left, um, focusing on worldly things, fleshly things, selfish things, glints and glimmers that Satan dangles before us uh, out in work, out on the internet. Anywhere we go, Lord, we are tempted to say, how can I be zealous when there is so much to, to practice that zeal in? And God, it's scary to be that zealous all the time, Lord. Please, God, give us a zeal that only you can give. It is not something that we can muster up. It is not something that we can just work within our hearts, Lord. We have to ask you to help us in this regard because we are tepid. We are, we are weak. We are so often lukewarm in this zeal. God, give us a holy fire for the true, pure, and perfect worship of God that we would not veer to the right or to the left. And Lord, may we demonstrate in all circumstances, at all times, those fruit of the Spirit which there is no law against, Lord. May we guard our own lives from the evil one, from our own flesh, and the world. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
Oh, we need to stop the recording. RJ, you hit stop on the recording.